It's a Cartoon Revolution. I'm Deidre. And I'm Sonia. Why Cartoon Revolution? Because the cartoons we love aren't just for kids anymore. Cartoons have something to say and change to inspire, and we're here to break it down for you. Whether it's anime or Pixar, 2D or CG. Join us as we take cartoons too seriously and discover their hidden meanings and revolutionary ideas. Hello. Hi. Welcome to spooky season. I'm doing fine. I'm doing cozy (laughs) because it's cozy season two. It is officially fall, I think, right? As we're recording this, is fall now? I think, or sorry, autumn, as more posh people would say, (laughs) autumn. (laughs) Autumn. Well, when this episode comes out, it's going to be over, but we're having our mid-autumn festival soon here in Hong Kong. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Enjoy. Cakes galore. Yes. Changing. Yes. Yeah. All fun things. Season of celebration. Yep. Yeah, this is the fun. best time I just feel for cartoons as well. It's something about fall just like reminds me of like cozy time as a child watching some mm-hmm. of my favorite cartoons and movies. And then there's always so many good movies that come out like stop motion or animation that come out around this time, like that have a little bit of that spooky feeling to it, but are targeted towards kids. And I just love that. It's a great time. Great time mm-hmm. for this show. What's your what's your fave? One of your faves? Uh, I think our fave, my fave is Over the Garden Wall, which is my subtle reminder to all of you listening to check that episode out because that was our other spooky feature as well as the Coraline episode because those are my two, and I'm, mm-hmm. I am suspect perhaps yours as well, some of my <laughs> two favorite spooky cartoon shows. So definitely check those out while you're feeling the spooky cozy vibes. Yeah, I concur. It's- yes. So I think within the category of spooky cartoons, there's one director that probably a lot of you would think of when it comes to the spooky gothic aesthetic, and that's Tim Burton. So we're talking about Corpse Bride, which is one of my favorites of his movies. Corpse Bride is a 2005 stop motion animated musical fantasy film directed by Tim Burton and Mike Johnson, set in a fictional Victorian era English village and follows Victor, who is voiced by Johnny Depp, who accidentally proposes to the bride, Emily, who happens to be an actual corpse because she's dead and voiced by Helena Bonham Carter. And this happens accidentally while Victor is practicing his marriage vows to his true intended, Victoria. So there's a bit of a love triangle going on here. And fun fact, I mean, not really, but I feel like most people know this, but Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter in most of Tim Burton's movies, he really loves to cast those two, both animated and live action. And that's true of this movie as well. But also interesting is that this film is supposedly inspired by a 17th century Jewish Russian folktale called The Finger, which I I did not know, actually. So that's actually the, yeah, it sounds spooky, right? (laughs) And I think that evokes there's that shot where Victor puts the ring on this like skeletal wooden finger and that turns out to be Corpse Bride or Emily's finger so yeah that's kind of an interesting fact we can talk a little bit more about that that tale later on but a little bit about Tim Burton as well so he's an American filmmaker animator and artist most renowned for his contributions to goth culture in the film industry so his portfolio encompasses films that you've probably heard of like Beetlejuice Edward Scissorhands The Nightmare Before Christmas Sweeney Todd and even some of the Batman movies as well as Corpse Bride of course he's also a published poet and artist which I didn't know I kind of want to check that out and see like how good he actually is but he's been nominated for many awards 
awards, including Academy Awards and BAFTAs for these works. I think he also did Alice in Wonderland too, which was the live action, one of my favorites growing up. So yeah, yeah definitely a really... pretty prolific director with a very specific style. I think he also contributed to a genre that I really, really loved growing mm-hmm. up and I still love is the kinder camp genre. Oh, tell me more. I actually don't know yeah. that term. So actually a lot of these movies fall into kinder camp, especially like Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands. So this genre was really popular back in like two 90s and early 2000s. So examples include The Addams Family, The Flintstones, I think Spy Kid might be included, Scooby-Doo. Oh, um, yes. So Ooh, nice. these are kind of films that are geared towards families and tweens and there's this kind of like satirical humor and they have these really outlandish like character designs and they're really into the the world building that's a little absurd but still somewhat has this reality based core to it like if you think of Edward Scissorhands there's really like a mood to the movie that has this there's there's a humor, but there's still that kind of edge of like something's really weird and like this guy has scissors for hands. Edgy. And it's yeah. still really funny. Yeah, it's just I love yeah, there's something really fun about these movies that I really love because it doesn't it never takes itself too seriously. And whether or not the humor always lands, like it's very <laughs> you see some of these films and they're definitely very like of its time, but like you can still just laugh as well i really i love those movies yeah i think that that reminds me of you said adam's family and tim burton actually i think directed or show ran the new wednesday adaptation Mm -hmm. um, or i guess extension of the series and that that feels very apt like how you describe that it's kind of like edgy and dark and gothic and spooky but also a little bit funny and like silly at the same time so yeah Yeah, i think that that does characterize him well i think that that lends perfectly to kind of what I wanted to open with, which is trying to define a little bit about what Tim Burton's style is, but also what gothic cinema or art looks like, because there's a lot of history and style there, and it's taken on a lot of context differently, especially in the modern context. Like we have like goth culture, punk culture, emo culture, kind of offshoots of gothic art and culture way back in the day, like in the 12th century. But when you think of the Tim Burton style and gothic specifically, that sort of a dark style, like what do you think of when you think of the visual imagery that you've seen in Tim Burton's movies? Like what kind of motifs or colors or creatures do you think of? It's usually a tinge of dark blue. Yes. Everyone has sunken eyes, like really yes. sunken eyes. And there's skeletons and yes skeletons <laughs> Just, yeah, yeah a lot of like ravens and crows that's around true. you have that's like true. a lot of like dead looking trees which is pretty I was cool about to say, <laughs> cats looking at my windows too yeah, <laughs> yeah. black cats yes yeah. we love black no cats. tortoise shells in those movies <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so it's pretty cool like you don't find many directors maybe wes anderson who have like a very specific style across all of their works or many of their works and they're able to translate that style across very different stories very different mediums too and one thing that's interesting to point out is that stop motion in particular is used for a lot of these kinds of works. Like if you think of Coraline, for example, his other works, I think there's like Paranorman, Nightmare Before Christmas, Frank and Weenie. A lot of these are also stop motion. A lot of them are like a studio specifically. Do you have any ideas around why specifically this 
type of animation is so well suited towards this kind of like dark, creepy style. Well, because I think so. First of all, this type of animation is, you know, you could technically do it at home, although obviously the way that they do it is a lot more intense and it takes a lot long. It's very long to film and they have to have hundreds of puppets. And I think part of it is no matter how smooth they get everything, you can still kind of see the, to me, I feel like you can kind of see the ghost of like the human touch that moves everything, which I think is really cool, but it's kind of eerie because you obviously can't see them. And I'm trying to think about like what actually solidly places it into like something that's really interesting to see. And I, and for me, I feel like there's, you just can't really escape the reality of it because it's something that's you're filming something physical and no matter how well cgi has performed there's always something a little bit off about it that gives it away which is not necessarily to say that cgi is like bad and stop motion is good right? boo. I just, I, yeah boo. <laughs> there's just i think a difference to how the how the medium works that has a lot of like, quirks to it that i i think yes. is really cool yeah I think that's that's really aptly described. I think it's that uh, kind of like the uncanny valley of something that like looks almost real, but is not quite perfectly real. And the way that stop motion translates movement is such a key component of why it's so well suited to giving like a spooky or like horror leaning kind of feeling. There's a really good article I read, I think from Roger Ebert's website, where they, they talk a little bit about like famous monsters and creatures like King Kong, for example, like back in the day when they didn't have CGI, where were usually made through like stop frame animation, like at a smaller scale, like they would have a little model and they would film it kind of like stop motion way. And then fit that piece into a live action, traditionally filmed sort of medium. And the way that it moved always gave like a creepier feeling than like normal live action filming. And it's the way that you can kind of see almost, or at least your brain sort of notices subtle bristles or differences in, in like different shots that gives it kind of like a disturbing artificial, but also very real feeling. And that's something that carries through in a lot of stop motion films like Corpse Bride and and others. And I think that's that's a really cool characteristic that is is very much worth paying attention to because it works so successfully in this film. You know what that's reminding me of as you're talking is subliminal messages. Yeah. The term, you know, where they like put an image or or they flash images every now and again through different frames. And, you know, I don't think they're necessarily doing that in this movie, but what you're talking about in terms of our brain being able to pick little differences because even though the frames are moving a lot faster when we're watching let's say this movie in particular 2005 corpse bride like i said there's always that human touch that you can't really see but there's like these little discrepancies that you're not necessarily like picking up on in the moment but i, I believe you when you say that your brain is picking up on some yeah it totally is subliminal yeah. it's like an unconscious yeah. realization without us actually understanding what's going on yeah and um, our brains are very good at picking up differences that we see yeah um, go brains go brains <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> good job how, it helps me find insects all the time so <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah so i think wrapping a bow on like sort of the this the gothic style i was reading a little bit about it and it's super interesting so it was, i think it sort of emerged around the 12th century and it was actually profoundly religious originally. A lot of the Gothic style was for churches and it was specifically paying attention to like naturalism and light because there was something about 
I guess, God that evokes light to people. I guess that makes sense. And they would use, obviously, the church windows with, like, the stained glass. And a lot of the, like, buttresses and and gargoyles and things like that were, like, part of, I guess, how they wanted to bring God into a space, which is really interesting. So we think of Gothic as sort of dark and spooky and horror, but actually at the time it was meant to be a lot more about light and religion, which is kind of interesting. And it, it sort of bounced back in the Victorian era, which is the era that this film is supposed to be set in. And then it's, well, it came back kind of again, like in, in the recent century with goth culture and punk culture and all of these cultures where people feel sort of like they embrace the other or they embrace like darkness or see kind of beauty in darkness that others don't. So it's kind of interesting to see how different interpretations sort of come in on the same art. But one thing in particular that I found super interesting is that also in the Victorian era, there was this thing called the tubercular aesthetic. Have you heard of this? Tubercular. As in tuberculosis. Oh. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no. <laughs> so there's a weird, wild thing that happened in that age wherein there were a lot of people who actually wanted to get tuberculosis because it gave them this kind what? of like thin, ghostly oh, sunken. collar. Yes, oh. the sunken oh. aesthetic. And they thought that was like kind of beautiful, actually. And especially women, like they wanted that sort of sunken, very pale aesthetic with slight rosy sickliness to the cheeks. That was considered something to actually aspire to, which is wild because it was definitely deadly. <laughs> But you kind of see that in the style of these characters as well. They have like those big eyes and kind of like the sunken, drawn face. They're all very pale and skinny. And so that sort of tubercular aesthetic is kind of carries through with the gothic style and art. Yeah. Do you know about the story about the moles? No. Um, the beauty spots? Tell so me. This was around, I think around middle of the 17th century. So a lot of people were getting sick, including from syphilis. And one of the things that they would do is that they would cut these these little moles and then like put them on their faces to hide the blemishes. But then it became wow. a trend where they would cut different shapes and sometimes put like a bunch of it's like velvet. Sometimes there's they would use different materials and then just like stick them on their faces. So they'd have like beauty marks. That's the origin of like the whole beauty mark thing. Wild. I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's just oh my gosh. a trend. We yeah, should be able to was. make that work so that acne is beautiful <laughs> and then yeah. people can stop. <laughs> but it needs to breathe, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. That is wild. Yeah. Fashion yeah. is wild. The relationship between like fashion and disease, all these things. Very interesting. Yeah. But anyways, speaking of sickness mm. let's talk about death because a lot of these films mm. they're they are about death there's an underworld component sometimes there's skeletons all of these things but what is interesting about this film in terms of its portrayal of death as well as in other similar films how does it help children grapple with death because at least for me death was something that I struggled with as a child, like when I first found out or realized that everyone dies, you know, children's movies were a kind of nice way to cope with that because there is a lot of death. There's a lot of characters who deal with death or confront it or have parents who pass. But what's interesting about this film is that it's the real living world, like the Victorian landscape that's shown as very bleak and sad and lonely. Whereas the world of death, the underworld is like very lively. There's a lot of color and music. And that's kind of a nice way to imagine death is feeling kind of like a colorful party. <laughs> so yeah, did you notice anything or have any thoughts on how this works for the film? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, my favorite scenes in the film did happen in the underworld. Yes, it's so, so much good. Livelier. Yes. Some great music. <laughs> songs are so like good. A party. And yeah, I mean, we touched on some of this in the Coraline episode about how stories for children do a lot like some some of the more famous stories do have like a darker tinge to it and, mm -hmm. and that helps people and children process some difficult ideas in a way that is still within a safe zone because they're not having to like face it right away and that's why it's kind of funny seeing some of the reviews when this movie first came out because they were talking about how tragic it is and how uh, glum <laughs> yeah and dark and i remember they had a pretty a similar review of an american tale where it was just like too dark and too mm. sad for kids because it, it's just funny seeing how the the pendulum swings because the original stories for a lot of these are way darker than what is yeah ends up showing right now i think there's this juxtaposition or like these two sides are fighting where it used to be that like we need to prepare the kids for death because it was something that was happening in people's lives all the time not that it's not happening right now but in like a more frontal way i guess and then we've swung completely the other way where we want to like protect quote unquote and shield kids mm. and that pendulum tends to swing back and forth and that's super interesting yeah that's just how i feel like there's so many political things that are where they use like children as a way to push their own people's own political views but mm. anyway I, I do think that there's a way in which tim burton's movies speak to a wide audience because there's this craving to really tackle these topics more and there's there's this like fascination but he still packages it in a more humorous tone right and that's kind of what i was touching on with the whole kinder camp genre he does that very well yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that parallels well with the gothic aspect, it being kind of, I suppose, where beauty and darkness meet. And it's the same thing with people who ascribe to goth culture is that they, they say that they find a lot of beauty and light in the darkness. And I think that's very much true with the movie's portrayal of death. And I think it is very helpful for children to sort of process and imagine death as something that is not necessarily always so scary it can also in some ways offer beauty in the way that it kind of brings people together in the way that it's something that is very universal in the way that it can sometimes bring a lot of peace to people who have lived a long life all of those things and i think it's also worth comparing to the movie coco which is another film which is a very different aesthetic it's much more festive and beautiful and bright and colorful it's in it's you know a different culture as well in mexico but it also has a, a similar story about a character exploring the underworld and finding something there that brings them a lot of life and joy upon their return yeah there's a vibrancy there that makes death a little less scary i think in terms of like passing on the the protagonist never wants to stay or not never wants to but he, the final part of the film isn't to stay in the underworld because you know it's so fun down there it's like they genuinely want to go back and live their lives <laughs> right um right i think that's a very important point because the message yeah. is not die the message is more that right. death so offers yeah <laughs> no way the message is more that understanding death and being around death can offer a lot of truth yeah i wanted to just touch on because we talked about themes in tim burton movies and i i do think one that comes up a lot is the preacher the like kind of really pious 
strict preacher who, you know, is based in the living world, but has this idea of death that's all like flames and and burning in hell. And that's, yeah. I think, rooted in the Catholic culture. Right. That, you know, everyone's a sinner and, you know, I'm not Catholic, so don't take my word on it. But, I think that's but, right. <laughs> but Yeah, that's what I get from the films. And it's, I think it's really interesting how the choice of that character is always placed in the films because that is like the anchor of what the world thinks. Right. You know, I mean, we only get one viewpoint, right? But like, that's supposed to be what everyone in the, the upper world thinks that the underworld is like. And it's wrong, <laughs> you know? And sometimes, yeah, sometimes it just leads to a very warped view of what death is. Yeah, yeah, right. And one's life is somewhat wasted if you live it fearing what kind of death you'll experience is kind of another theme of the film. Yeah, which is something society struggles with. Yeah, so it's so it's worth noting, though, that, that many of Tim Burton's stories are tragic gothic stories, but they're also love stories. And this is not like new to the genre. Like if you think of Edgar Allan Poe, who, who I think most people would say is kind of like an icon of like gothic poetry and art. A lot of his poetry and short stories are also love stories. Like they're, they're horror, they're scary, whatever, but they're also love stories and they're also very romantic. So the idea of having a story around a corpse bride, this is literally the, the intersecting figure of like death and love is both unique, but not unique in terms of the genre. But yeah, spoiler alert, you know, the, the film sort of has a choice at the end, which is obviously Victor. He's kind of loves both women. He loves the corpse bride or Emily, and he loves Victoria, the, the woman he was supposed to marry in the real world. And he has a lot of profound empathy for both. But at the end, Emily sort of has to make the decision for the man that she loves, which is Victor, knowing that he, he belongs to the world of the living and he belongs to Victoria and chooses to let him go. And that's like a very self-sacrificial sort of beautiful act, or at least that's how the film portrays it. After she's killed Barkus, the person who killed her, she also makes this decision. And it's those two things together that sort of help her move on peacefully onto, I suppose, the next phase of death. But I think it's a beautiful theme and it's also very tragic. It's it's not a new theme. You know, we see that in like Romeo and Juliet. There's a, This is a common sort of theme around being able to let go or, or die or change for the person that you truly love. Yeah, it's kind of like a second death, I guess. I like that we can see Emily's character arc kind of move through mm -hmm. the movie because we have Victor, but it was nice to have Emily also take part in that journey and or I guess in her own journey because um, we don't get to see that in Victoria, obviously. There's definitely like a romanticism around, like you said, in terms of the gothic genre to me when i think about the gothic genre i think a lot about vampires i think about yes uh, frankenstein mary shelley i think about yeah that, that's like there's definitely a mood to that too yeah but i i was just never really into romance growing up so i don't know what <laughs> about necrophilia myself, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah that I mean, that's that's i'm not gonna call that romance but <laughs> i'm sure someone thinks it is <laughs> yeah i mean i can kind of bring this to there's a, definitely a trope like you're saying i think it's called white in a wedding dress but you could also call it like the horror bride trope but it's white something that you see dress. 
Yeah, it's really interesting, but it's it's a lot of times in stories, it's like usually a woman or a bride who's been like wronged in some way, like she's killed on her wedding day or betrayed by her lover on her wedding day. Like she comes and sort of haunts a place or a person out of her loneliness, out of her betrayal. Sometimes she's very murderous and vengeful. Sometimes she's just very sad. And that's kind of the case in, in, in Emily's case. She was waiting for her star-crossed lover to come meet her so that they could run away and get married together and that she dies she's killed mysteriously and now like she's kind of stuck in in death sort of waiting for her true husband to come and marry her and that's kind of like her whole purpose but the horror bride trope you see it in other stories but honestly what i remember it from is just random like horror stories around summer camps and different things that i would hear like i remember in, in california it's very common for students to go on summer camp to catalina island which is like this island that's very close it's like a 40 minute ferry ride from Long Beach. And I remember I was at this camp, it was like an overnight camp and they would tell us horror stories around the fire. And one of them was about this woman in a white dress who would like wait for her lover at the pier, her sailor who like sailed off to sea and never returned or something like that. And it's just a common in, in, in a lot of the stories, there's the bride whose lover went off to war or something and never returned to like marry her or something like that. <laughs> I don't know, have you heard that. of any of these? Totally an- yeah, well, I mean, to me, I I don't remember any stories from camp, but I that story of like a woman waiting for her man who yes for war and then never comes back is actually it's that episode in Pokemon with the ghastly that like, <laughs> pretends to be the woman <laughs> oh and then God. the statue. Do you remember that episode? I do not. <laughs> oh my gosh, I remember it was <laughs> that was for me. I guess the summer camp. That story. is so funny. But horror has so many like women in white dresses not always brides sometimes like well in indonesian culture we have a a woman who gives who has miscarries miscarries Mm. and dies so you know it's all kind of just like horror surrounding mistreatment of women (laughs) exactly it's so true throughout history i feel like it's society's way of externalizing internalizing or like not grappling with the violence towards yes you know absolutely yeah i mean my i i think this film does it well because i think with brides and marriage like for women the stakes are a lot higher we are kind of historically have often been like auctioned off to the highest bidder our stability our safety our success very much rides on a successful marriage oftentimes we haven't had that much choice or say in the matter of who that partner or husband is a lot of times that marriage could be abusive and you see that like in this film victor and victoria are kind of like sold to each other by their pretty awful parents and when victor kind of runs off or gets taken away to the realm of the dead victoria immediately gets sold off to a way worse man lord barkus and i think there's definitely a tr- truth to the trope or a lot of these horror stories which is that women oftentimes haven't had the choice or we've been betrayed or we've been killed or we've been promised something that isn't true or we felt unrequited love or the one that we love has chosen someone else and it's it's really unfortunate and does leave a lot of sadness and betrayal and even in this movie victor has the choice uh, between like two characters he can choose emily or he can choose victoria whereas both of the women really only have one choice for whom they love but it's really nice that the story empowers emily to be the one who like chooses for victor whom he will end up with yeah exactly that's why the whole love triangle thing 
it happens so often and it's gotten quite tiresome in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I think the element of Emily being empowered is really important because that that shifts the narrative a little bit. And that's why yeah. so many people love Emily is, is the way that she kind of gets that power back. And she's like a badass. She's yes. <laughs> He didn't end up with her, but that doesn't mitigate the kind of like badassery that Emily has shown throughout the film, <laughs> just like as a cool girl. You know? Yeah. And most um, importantly, she's very kind and selfless. Like, I think a lot of these horror narratives are kind of like sexist in that they portray the men as like being so afraid of this vengeful, evil spirit who's going to kill him. And she's often just portrayed as just like a creature of pure anger who's on a vengeance quest when really she's probably the one who has been wronged. But it's really nice to see that trope turned slightly and that we have a character who's very empathetic. Her background and story is something that's actually very understandable. And it's really the the ex-husband or the person who was supposed to be her husband, Lord Barkis, who's actually the villain in this scenario. Well, we also see, we see on the flip side, a woman who's portrayed as like the pure one who like is a lot blander in her <laughs> her characterization. And it can sometimes be this like damsel in distress figure, mm -hmm. which I think Victoria falls more into that trope right and i think of bram stoker's uh, dracula as well i think it's mina who needs saving as well i just watched bram stoker's dracula the one with winona ryder and mm. gary oldman so i'd never watched it before it was it was wild i loved it <laughs> i thought it was so cool have you watched it I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I think that the Dracula story in particular also falls through the gothic genre. And Victoria just kind of reminds me of, of the Mina character as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's, yeah, it's safe to say that love and death are pretty core tenets of the gothic genre and also a lot of Tim Burton's films. And this movie does a really good job of portraying those two things as mm. really sort of tragic, but also beautiful and dark all at the same time. So, okay, I have a question because why is it white in a wedding dress? Because the wedding dress is white, but what does the, I'm confused about the rest of that. So it's white spelled W-I-G-H-T. What does that mean? Oh, a white is like, <laughs> it's like a specter. It's oh, like a, a folklore ghost. term. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. See. It's like a ghost. Oh, wow. I talked about this whole time. <laughs> and I didn't realize. <laughs> no worries. No worries. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's harder when you're not like seeing it spelled out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But okay, speaking good. of white. Okay. <laughs> speaking of white. So if you're around... Was this, I don't even know, 2016 or something like that? There was the Oscars So White movement. And I think oh, it was around this was that time. With, um, yeah. Sorry, was that with, what was it, Moonlight, that film? Yeah. In yeah. La 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 and it might have oh been. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Or 2017, yeah. something around there. Anyways, oh around gosh. that time, <laughs> there was the Oscars So White movement. And a lot of people were talking a lot online about how white Hollywood is and how there's so much lack of diversity, how much it's institutionalized, obviously in favor of white people and to the disadvantage of Black and Asian, Indigenous, many other minorities. And among those was a lot of conversation around Tim Burton and his sort of aesthetic in which, you know, a lot of his films feature, as we talked about this, like 
pale, tubercular, white, Victorian, English, or whatever sort of aesthetic. And most of his films at that time, at least, had only had maybe one, like across or two across all of his works, people of color. And oftentimes they were villains or side characters. Yeah, you mean speaking roles, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and there's a pretty famous interview he gave where the reporter asked him about this. And one of his responses was that things either call for these things or they don't, sort of implying that like his aesthetic or style doesn't call for diversity or for minorities to be present. He got a lot of backlash. Aesthetic. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. He got a lot of backlash for this. And yeah, so I, I guess I kind of want to talk a little bit about that because it is true, like, except until recently with Wednesday, which actually features a prominently Latinx cast and also has some black characters with speaking roles. Before that, a lot of his style, the gothic style and like his works were prominently like white dominant cast. And even with and white even more so not diverse because a lot of his actors were just Johnny Depp, Helen the Bonham Carter, and Winona Ryder, like the three. So like even within white people, like he really favored a very specific white people in them. So yeah, do you have any thoughts on what dictates a style? And is it really true that certain types of people or skin tones or whatever can't be part of a certain styles? I mean, to, to the last part of that question, no. So I, I think that is an excuse. Um, yeah, I agree. Whether or not it's like conscious or unconscious, I think is not really for us to say. And people are debating it online all the time. I just, I, I guess it's less about his intention and more about his action a lot of the times. And I also would bring up another question is like, what is his responsibility? Because it's, I feel like I must have talked about this before, but like he definitely is an artist and he's an auteur. He has a style that he like really sticks to. But if everyone is kowtowing to that style and not pushing him, because like there's all these executives, there's producers, there's people who watch the film. If they're not like kind of pushing him to evolve the style a little bit and to be more inclusive, why should he want to, especially if he's making so much money? And I think Wednesday is a good example because Tim Burton kind of fell off after a while, right? A long while. Mm -hmm. And when he came back, this show needed to appeal to a newer audience than when his films first started coming out. That is a lot more conscious about diversity, at least in front of the camera, right? We can have a debate about behind the camera. And... Yeah, and he still cast like very pale <laughs> people and but it is more diverse. And I, I, I do think it kind of just shows that it's not just about him either. And I think sometimes when we when we talk about these topics, we over focus on a single person as opposed to a system and a society. Yes. A lot of different people making tweets and we, we're included in that. Right. I don't think like if you watch Tim Burton films in theaters and you paid for him, you like you're contributing to him like not casting black people and like you I think that's a personal decision that everyone makes but I don't think it's a hard line either yeah I see what you're saying I I, I do think um, people like Tim Burton are sort of the figureheads that receive a lot of criticism but it's a systemic issue but I definitely think yeah. it's interesting this whole concept of is this sort of gothic aesthetic a white aesthetic because I think Wednesday proves that it's not. There's some black characters and and Latinx characters who clearly fit in very well with the story and the style of of the show. And then I also read this super interesting article because I, you know, when I think of goths, like goth culture goths, I do the person I do envision in my head is a very pale person with dyed black hair and like eyeliner. 
But I read a super interesting article about Black goths, which is, it's very much a real thing. There are a lot of people who are Black and who also identify as goth, and they call themselves Afro-goths. And these people, a lot of times, they push back on that perception of it being like a Eurocentric sort of style or aesthetic. And there is just a really interesting article from Vice called, There's Nothing More Goth Than Being Black. And it just, there's these Afro-goth people who talk about how if like goth culture is all about embracing the beauty of darkness and embracing being weird or other, then blackness is is really the best site through which to explore that because black people historically have been very stigmatized or otherized in our society, all European societies really. And how a lot of these like black goths are sort of like trying to take back some of the narrative around what goth looks like. And sort of build their own Afro-Gothic kind of style. They they also talk a lot about like goth culture, like music, popular culture, how a lot of it is somewhat steeped or related to like Black artists as well who have contributed a lot to the genre and aesthetic. So yeah, I think that kind of debunks maybe like whatever, you know, a Tim Burton or his fans might say around like whether an aesthetic is sort of more white or not. And I definitely think, yes, take take it against the system but i think aesthetic is not something that should be dependent on race no it shouldn't and it definitely it it is a reflection of where our minds are all at because you you see aesthetics online you see like cores right and a lot of them become co-opted or are just very like hostile to people of color so then you need to have you know people of color creating their own subsections like black goth like they need to say black goth so that they can find each other because it's Mm -hmm. like too much right they can't just use goth because they're not accepted Mm -hmm. so i i totally believe that that's really interesting and i think that makes a lot of sense especially with the history of slavery like i know like Mm -hmm. that's not that's not in traditional European history that we associate with the origins of goth culture. But I think there's a lot of if we're talking about like unprocessed trauma in the society, I feel like there's so much to dig for, especially in the horror genre that can blend mm, right. with the with the gothic genre. Right. And super cool. <laughs> yeah. And we're seeing a lot more of that. I think Jordan Peele has brought a lot to that, like mm-hmm. how horror intersects with black history. And yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of intersection there behind intergenerational yeah. trauma and things in the past and how that can intersect with like a goth kind of style. Historically, is usually about something that is threatening the social order. Like a lot of times it used to be like the main characters were like a white nuclear family and then the horror aspect is some sort of other. It's something that represents black people, something that represents immigrants. So that's like what the horror genre was oftentimes used for. It was used to like support and justify you know, cultural norms and privilege and like what should be the standard America or whatever. But now it's changing. Now it's no, actually the the social order is what's horrifying. You know, it's it's the the mm-hmm. heteronormity, heteronorm nor, hetero I can't Heteron- even heteronormative, heteronormative <laughs> homogeneity. All of those like, you know, white culture, that's a horror aspect and it's it's like, you know, immigrants, people of color, black people, indigenous people, those are the characters that are facing those horrors. And I think Get Out is a really good example of that. Like the horror genre has, is changing a lot or has been changing a lot. And it's become more self-aware and it's become more about 
about exposing what's truly horrifying in society rather than upholding what is traditionally supposed to be good and bad. But yeah, just to kind of tie the bow on this topic, I, I also read a really interesting article and it was from a fan of Tim Burton or someone who used to be a really good fan um, named Daksha Pillai. And she she wrote this article talking about how we kind of have this mythos of like the creative genius or the artistic genius, like filled with gothic whimsy and childhood imagination like Tim Burton. And we tend to like give them a lot of leeway in terms of how they can practice their style. Um, but what she talks about is actually that unconventional people you know, someone who might think of unconventional as Tim Burton, like unconventional people can still have conventional biases. And that really stuck out to me as like, yeah, there can be creative geniuses, there can be artistic geniuses, but that does not mean that they don't still have conventional biases like racism that is so very systemic. That's so true. Something I was just also thinking about, I'm pretty sure Bell Hooks talked about how we're not born as blank slates into the world. We're born into a society that is patriarchal and is is racist or whatever. And that is the slate that we're given when we're born. Everything else is us trying to like rework it. I guess like her point, or this is my understanding of her point, is that if we are all kind of like born into that slate, if we don't fit into that, we're doing a lot of work to try to understand the world because it doesn't really make sense to us if we're women, if we're black or whatever. And if you fit a little bit more into the idea of what society is pushing on you and the thing and the messages that you get when you're born with or how you're raised, you're not questioning it quite as much. And sometimes we forget that. And also everyone has their own struggles that they deal with, but we need to also kind of give we just need to also remember we're all born into these same or like similar systems together. Right, exactly. Like even this creative genius class of people, they're not outside of that that social order, nor can they be excused from their own biases. Yeah, yeah. So there's still a lot to be changed, but it's an, I don't know, it's an exciting time. I think the fact that we can get a Jordan Peele's onto the scene, it's I yes. it more doors for yes. people. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Anyway, why do you think this movie is revolutionary? I think it offers a lot to talk about, both within the movie itself, but also outside of it, about movies as a whole. And uh, I think it also does a good example of sharing how the other, the weird, the stuff that we fear... A lot of it comes from a lot of different places. It comes from like our history. It comes from folklore. It comes from our true own fears and biases or whatever it is, rather than a single source. And I think Tim Burton is, I really do respect him for his artistic style, but I think we also shouldn't give too much credit to just him and rather a lot of the inspiration that he draws from other places. And I think Gothic culture is a really good example of that as well as something that has changed a lot over the centuries. Yeah, I think I, I think that's a great point because we can hold multiple things to be true at once. And that's a great example of like holding the art of Tim Burton, but then also understanding its context and societies yeah. uh, are things that are complicated and you know, we're not going to tell people what's right and wrong. So <laughs> yeah, 
yeah it's not that easy it's not that simple i guess right and something i i forgot to mention like in the conversation about race is that there's a really good video essay from the princess and the scrivener and she talks about the jewish erasure actually in a lot of tim burton films so the folklore that i mentioned the finger is is a jewish folktale but interestingly tim burton took that folktale but transplanted it in a victorian english setting and the religion in question as well in the setting is like a Christian religion. Like it's, it's a priest, yeah. right? Yeah. Not, not like a rabbi or anything like that. So when I talk about like horror and Tim Burton's style, aesthetic stories coming from a lot of different sources, like this is a good example of the way that the source material of a story can oftentimes be erased or damaged in when it's transplanted or translated in a different sort of format or story. And I think it's worth noting that in addition to, you know, the Black and people of color, like the Jewish history and storytelling here was very much warped in the film and kind of like lost in translation in a way that was not very authentic or true to the original story. Oh, that would have been so cool. I that would have been really interesting. I feel like we have right. seen that. And that would have been a great flip on the tropes. Exactly. Um, and like I think the folktale itself was about or came from like the Jewish pogroms. Like there's all these like hateful, violent campaigns against Jewish people throughout European history. And it just all goes to show that horror is an excellent tool for exposing a lot of these systemic problems, the violence that minorities and all these groups have felt and been, you know, have experienced persecution. And you know, historically, it's not been, it's been used to uplift the dominant narrative rather than expose those problems. And this is, this was an opportunity that was missed, but something that hopefully like his future works like Wednesday and, and thereafter will do more to address in the way that Jordan Peele has. Yeah. So, okay. Okay. So I think for me, it's, it's really the Emily of the situation. Yes. And, I love her. Yeah. And, and the way that she was empowered in the end, even though she was wronged and she like, she was shown to be someone who was very interesting and yet didn't have a lot of agency with the way she was treated while she was living or when she did, that's when she got like punished quote unquote and she died. Yeah. Um, because I think in a lot of these tropes, I don't even want to say it's changing because in a lot of places it really isn't. But it's like when a woman deviates from this idea of the role that society gives her, she is punished and sometimes by death. Like we, yeah, that is just a reality that a lot of women have had to live with. And we can see that played out in Emily, especially in before she died, kind of like that, that narrative of, oh, she was being deviant. Like she tried to run away and marry someone she wasn't supposed to. And then this was her punishment. And because most of the time we see Emily really is not when she's like that. It's like in her after death, we get to appreciate the person that she is and was so that we really do feel like it was unjust when we see kind of like how her life was taken from her and like how stupid that was so anyway that's i just think that was very interesting especially in back in 2005 so <laughs> yeah emily is definitely like she really is the light of this show like she's such a gorgeously animated character she has so much personality and just light to her like she just you can really see how in the film it's like a moth to flame or something like she's just such a beacon and yeah i just love her so much as a character Okay, cool. So hot takes, Easter eggs, theories. Do you have anything cool to offer? 
Yeah, I have like two little tidbits. I think mm-hmm. the first, and I completely forgot this movie came out at the same time, was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That's what oh, she was nice. on at the same time in 2005, which also has Johnny Depp in it. <laughs> so he was, oh yeah, my he God. Was oh, you're talking about the worst movies. adaptation too, right? Because there's the, multiple, and this one, one was definitely with, the worst. Oh, yeah, with, jo- with Johnny Depp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, honestly, I don't remember it that well. I just remember him being kind of weird. Um, Classic. But anyway, it was just, yeah, it was a weird take on Willy Wonka, but you know what? We're good. So <laughs> Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, yeah. So so appa- this is apparently Tim Burton was working on both films at the same time, but he definitely preferred Corpse Bride more. So he spent more of his time and energy on this movie. Than oh, that's he did so funny. On Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Honestly, and same. <laughs> I <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I no competition had like, you know, if I had known these two movies, or if I had remembered these two movies came out in the same year, I was like, I wouldn't watch Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> I definitely watch nope. Corpse Bride. Okay, the second part has to do, or the second thing that I have has to do with animation. And it has to do with how the dolls were animated because I, there's a lot of really cool things that this movie did that had never been done before in, in stop motion animation. And so, you know how you have to like take a picture and then move the dolls a little bit and take a picture and move the dolls a little bit. And that's kind of the entire process. Like it can take weeks to film a single scene. Something that they did, which normally they don't is that they had these gears in the face. So like all these puppets had little mechanisms in the head. And so you would put a key into one of the ears and turn it and it could Ooh, make spooky. the facial expressions change. Whoa. And yeah, it was so cool. <gasps> I did not know. They still had like 300 puppets total or something like that. <laughs> like they made so many uh-huh. multiples of the main characters as well. But they they still had that mechanism and it made it a lot easier instead of having to change the entire mouth parts or like mm-hmm. them with clay that they could just turn the keys and it would make the the dog smile or I, I just put my mouth down as if it was shut. <laughs> I forgot that this was the podcast. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, so yeah, I thought that was really cool. And and the veil, oh, Emily's veil was one of the hardest things to animate to get that kind of fluid mm. motion. Oh, it was so good though. Like that scene where she's so like good. dancing around the moon. Oh my God, it was gorgeous yeah. animated. There are moments where they used CGI, but very rarely. I think right. they really tried right. not to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about you? Yeah. So my kind of hot take or theory is, so you know how the film, it centers on a love triangle basically, but Tim Burton was at the center of his own love triangle in his personal life, like shortly what? before this movie, which is kind of funny. So he was married to, I'm looking on her name, but he was, he had a wife like in the early 2000s. And then he met Helena Bonham Carter, one of the people who's in a lot of his movies, on set for another movie and fell in love with her. And then his wife, like very dramatically and kind of rightfully, like sold a lot of his stuff at auction. And it was like kind of this like kind of funny, (laughs) but tragic and sad love triangle. So I just thought that was really funny because this was, you know, not long before or very close to the the production for this movie, which is all about sacrificing oneself for like your true loves, true love and, you know, sacrificing your own happiness and just like how to, to find your true love, which I thought was really funny with Helen the Bottom 
kind of voicing Emily, who's actually the one who who ends up alone at the end. So I just thought that was really funny. And I just wondered how much of his true story or, or experience maybe went into that characterization or that story. But it definitely that the message is around a man sort of being able to love two different women. But it's just funny that the woman is the one who one of the women chooses for him as opposed to him making that choice. But Helena Bonham yeah. Carter's character is the one who, who doesn't win. So, yeah, it's just very funny how that happened. <laughs> well, win meaning win the guy. <laughs> yes, win the guy. I, I think we can all argue that she still won. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in terms okay, of winning, yes, to, winning the guy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> winning um, does not necessarily mean ending up with a man. I think we would both agree that that's true. <laughs> <laughs> just in case anyone didn't know. <laughs> yes, you can definitely tell. Yeah. <laughs> that was such an enriching discussion. I love talking about these or having these spooky episodes because they're all always always the most fun like horror in general Mm -hmm. um so thank you quick closing announcements we'll be on hiatus for the rest of the year as usual hope to be back next year with some exciting new content have a great holiday season scott got things in the work but we also got a rest so yes it'd be true signing off yeah after this spooky season go enjoy eat as much candy as you like or don't you know we're not going to tell you what to do (laughs) (laughs) thanks for joining us on cartoon revolution episodes drop the first week of every month on spotify apple podcasts and most other major podcast platforms follow us on instagram at cartoonrevolution.pod that's cartoonrevolution.pod tell us what you're watching and share your hot takes with us music is from the musical ghost see you next time see you soon Mwah.